Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. You know, we're Thanks. In Mark, and so if you would like to, turn to chapter 5, and if you wouldn't like to, then turn to chapter 5 anyway, uh, and we'll get started. As you know, uh, most of you, welcome back, Rich and Mary. Amen. So they moved They moved to Chicago, or well, everything in that state, Chicago, I guess. It's either Chicago or around Chicago, but they're back just to visit. So anyway, we are going through the book of Mark, and we're not doing verse by verse like I would typically do through a book uh, of Scripture, uh, but we're taking one teaching from each chapter. And so today in chapter 5, I'm going to talk talk through 1 through 5 and then teach through 6 through 20 um, with a message called Learning from the Demoniac. So if you want to take notes, that's that's what we're talking about today. Last week we talked out of chapter 4 about Jesus being our peace, um, that he's our peace before the storm, he's our peace during the storm, and he's our peace after the storm. I, and and I, I, those are one of those sermons that I've told my wife this week that I really feel like I'm going to have to bring to the Sunday church, to to the entire church, because, man, we we need peace in our life. Amen? And so if you'll be patient and listen to it twice, um, you're likely to have to before too long, just so you know, Um, which is fine, because if you're anything like me, it takes you at least 10 times to absorb most of what somebody else tells me anyway. So we're going to talk about the demoniac or the story from the demoniac through verse 20 today. Uh, I want to talk about what we can learn from this message. So I'm going, to, I'm going to start with this question. Why did Jesus come to earth? There's a couple of reasons why Jesus came. Primarily, the he came to, to declare that we should repent, that the kingdom of God is near. Amen? But we also hear in the by the Apostle John in 1 John 3, 8, that the Son of God appeared for this purpose. So he said, let me tell you, one of the most significant reasons, the reason that Jesus came, it's the reason why we need to repent in the first place, is because the enemy exists. And so he says, the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil over our life. And so the Son of Man came to take back, Jesus came to take back what the enemy has taken from us. That is the perfection that we live in, that we lived in prior to the fall. And even as early as Genesis 3.15, we see God making this declaration over the enemy that there will be a time in the future where your head will be crushed. Your head, the serpent, will be crushed by the heel. And that that is... Jesus. Jesus is the one that accomplished that purpose, and he did it through the work of the cross. Amen? So we need to recognize first why he came, if we're going to make this make this teaching make sense. He came to destroy the works of the devil, and he did this at the cross. I can prove this to you in Scripture. Colossians 2, 14 through 15 says, having canceled out the certificate of debt, having nailed it to the cross, The certificate of debt that we owed, the debt that we owed because of the sin that Jesus died for, is death. Our sin caused us to be owed death. The penalty of sin is what? 
death. That's, that's, the, that's the just payment due for the sin we live in and that we're born into is death. And so he nailed that to a cross, according to Colossians, which was hostile to us, which, of course, led to death. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Then he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, all the enemies, demons and principalities and all of these things, and he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So not only did he destroy the works of the enemy, but he made a public spectacle of the fact that he did when he rose out of the grave and was seen by so many upon resurrection and now sits at the right hand of the Father, still making public display of what he did to the enemy, the authorities, the principalities, the demons, and the rulers of darkness. Amen? And so we have to recognize that all of this happened according to Jesus' power, his ability, we were redeemed. Now, not to use spiritual language, because I, I don't want to confuse anyone. To be redeemed means that we were bought back, and to be justified means that we are now not guilty, so so not guilty, in fact, it's as though we were never guilty in the first place. We haven't had our, our sin crossed out. We've had our sin literally chiseled out of us as though it never existed according to the Word of God. That's what it is to be justified. You're not under indictment and haven't had the indictment removed. It's as though the indictment never existed in the first place. This is the work that was done at the cross, that we are free and we are sin-free because of the work of Christ in our life, because Jesus became the sin so that we wouldn't have to bear the consequence of our sin. But the cross isn't the only place that he did this. He did this throughout this the destruction of demonic principalities and demons and the enemy and all of these things. He did this even in his earthly ministry. We see over and over and over again that he was casting out demons. In Luke, several times within the first couple of chapters, you see that he cast out demons. You see several places in Mark. He, throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus' earthly ministry included healings and the casting out of demons. And so not just at the foot of the cross did he destroy these things, but he actively destroyed these things before he even went to the cross by his power because he has the greatest power on earth. I'm going to talk about that in just a few moments, that it is by his power as the authoritarian, the authoritarian figure in all of the universe, he has the right to command whatever it is he's created. And since all things are created by him, he has the right to command everything. Amen? Everybody tracking so far? All right, so he was so good at this, the destruction of demons, the destruction of anything that stood opposed to God, that the Pharisees and the scribes articulated argued that he must be in league with the enemy. In Luke, they, they actually accused him how... How can he do this except that he be in agreement with the enemy? Jesus heard this, and in Luke eleven seventeen through 22, I'm not going to go there and read that if you want to write that down. He essentially says, that's not true. For how can, how can, we, how can I do it if, we're, if, we're not in, if we are in agreement? I can't stand opposed to that. It can't stand opposed to me. He said, I do it because of the authority that I have. I'm able to do it because I rule all things. I'm able to do it because of who I am, and those things listen to me. 
And so we recognize that God in Christ Jesus has the ability to do only what God can do, but praise God. And as a side note, he gave us his name, the authority of his name, to use that name also to accomplish the same purpose. And so with that in mind, I want to read one through five. Jesus, we talked last week in chapters 4, 35 through 41 about the storm and how Jesus said at the very beginning of that story, he said, let us go to the other side. And then all this horrible stuff came. And I told you, if you will have confidence in what Jesus says is true, then the storms in your life won't matter. If Jesus says, we're going to go to the other side, we can guarantee what? We're going to go to the other side. Jesus didn't say, I might get you to the other side. Let's talk about going to the other side. We're going to go to the other side, potentially, if this storm doesn't freak us out, because Jesus knows all things and is all places at all times. He would have known that storm was coming, but he didn't make any of those statements. He said, we're going to go to the other side. So that story happens, and then in chapter 5, we hear this. They came to the other side. Well, that's, that's pretty pretty impressive. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. That's probably the southern way to say it. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken into pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming amongst the tombs and in the mountains and gnashing himself with stones. Imagine, if you can, for a moment, this individual. This person that was so ostracized by society because of what was living in him that he was an outcast to society for fear that he would destroy them. They tried to chain him. He broke the chains. He was too strong, too capable to be in society, so they, they cast him out. And he was tormented day and night. Imagine if you can such a thing. I can. Because I I have a tendency when I read this story to look at the demoniac and think, that's a horrible dude. I'm glad I was never that bad. But I can relate to him because prior to Jesus, I was that bad. There's no grade of your sin. There's no height, depth to your sin. You are sinful or you are saved. You are destined for hell or you are destined for heaven. You live according to your flesh or you live according to the spirit, which is life. It doesn't matter the depravity of your mind. It's all rebellion to God. And so all of us should be able to learn from this person that we think when it's taught, it's often taught that he was so horrible we should praise God. There's almost a sense that we should praise God that we weren't as bad as this guy. But I tell you, you were as bad as this guy. You were every bit going to hell as this guy. You were every bit as tormented as this guy. You were every bit as bound as this guy. And ostracized as this guy. 
You were just too blind to your sin and a slave to it that you couldn't see it. And so here's this guy doing what he's always done. Jesus comes, and this is what happens. I'm going to go point by point to make these points, and I'm going to, I'm going to go through the verses as I get to each point. But this, this man, I think there's four things we can learn from him. And the first thing we learn from the demoniac is that everything, everybody say everything, submits to Jesus. I want you to take this teaching and I want you to internalize it. This storm that we just came out of in chapter 4, this storm that is in your life, I don't think it's an accident that these two stories are side by side. Because coming out of your storm, you need to realize that everything, including the storm in your life, submits to Jesus. Every bit of turmoil, every bit of discomfort, every bit of discontent, everything the enemy would have pressed against you submits to Jesus. In 6 through 7, we read this. Seeing, just, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I implore you by God, do not torment me. Isn't this crazy? No one else could subdue this guy, but seeing Jesus from far away, these demons within this guy, but Jesus being seen far away caused him to come under submission to the authority that Jesus possessed. And he submitted in worship. What is worship? We've learned in the last couple of weeks that worship is the act of reverence and adoration. So even in his crazy, upset, upside-down, volatile world, the demons within this man acknowledged that Jesus was the Son of the Most High God and did what all of us, especially those of us who belong to him, should do, which is fall to our face, in worship of him, in submission to him, and submit everything we are to him. And we should say the same thing this guy says. Son of the Most High God, what is it you shall do with me? That's not a question for the unsaved only. That's a question for the saved too. Son of God, what would you do with me? What would you do with me? And I will do it. Whatever you need done, this, this demoniac was willing to do whatever he was told to do because he had a fear of God. And we should have that. We should be fearful of God too. I don't think we should fear the same way because he's, he's, those demons are damned. There's no repentant spirit in them. Their fear was true terror. Our fear should be true reverence. But we should still fear. We should know who God is. We should submit and worship to who God is. You know why? Because he's worthy of it. I've told this before, and I'll say it again, probably again before I die, at least 100 times. Our job is to fear God, because when we fear God, we fear nothing else. And that's this guy. That's these demons inside of this guy. They submitted to him. They implored him. They begged of him, please don't do this to me. Do whatever it is you want to me. Please don't destroy me. 
Why did they do it? They did it because they knew who Jesus was. They knew Jesus was omnipotent. They knew Jesus was omnipresent. They knew Jesus was omniscient. Now, these are big words for he was omnipotent in that he is all-powerful. Nothing created is greater than that which created it. God created it. Everything that he created submits to him. It has to. He's stronger than. The word of God, I'm going to read some verses, not verses, but some ideas and then the verses that back those up. Everything is upheld by God's power, according to Hebrews 1-2. He can do all things and nothing can thwart his plans, according to Job 4, 21 and 22. I think it's Job. Nothing is possible for nothing is impossible for him, according to Luke one thirty seven. His he works his plans by the strength of his might, Ephesians one nineteen. God is capable; he is all powerful. Why was this guy submitting? Why was this guy willing to worship? Because he recognized that God was stronger than him. And man, wouldn't it be nice if Christians understood the same thing? that God is omnipotent. And I'm not just talking about in a condemning way or in a way that should bring you conviction, but in a way that should bring you peace. For if you stand in the shadow of the Most High God, you should be in perfect peace. You should know that because of who God is and your relationship with Him, your His omnipotence should bring you comfort. Man, but you don't know what I'm going through. I don't know what you're going through. But I know you serve a God who, one, knows what you're going through and is capable of destroying it. We should walk around. Now, we're not David, but we should walk around the battlefield like David as he approached Goliath with that much confidence in the God that we serve. David didn't have any confidence or faith in his own strength. He had confidence and faith in the strength of God. He understood who God was. The enemy understands who God is. And so he submitted. If the enemy can submit because of who God is, shouldn't we be able to? He's not just omnipotent, though, all-powerful. He's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere at all times, and he's omniscient, which which means he knows all things. There's no place to hide from God. There's no place that he isn't. There's no place that he doesn't exist. Wherever you are, whatever you're going through, that should bring you peace and comfort. Whatever it is, whatever you're going through, should also cause you to pay attention to where you are and where you're going to. The idea that God is near because he's omnipresent should freak us out and comfort us at the same time. You guys have heard the text? Be anxious for nothing. God is near. That's, that brings me great comfort to know that the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God is right here. He's as right here as he is to John Reddit over there and the believer in India and the unbeliever in Africa. He's right here, omnipresent all the time. And he is all-powerful, which means I can legitimately stand in his presence and know that he protects me. I submit to him because he's all-powerful, because he's all-knowing, because he's omnipresent. Now, it shouldn't just bring me comfort, though. It ought to mess me up a little bit. It ought to convict me because if God is near, that means he's near even when you ain't doing what you should be doing. But he loves you enough to protect you in those times and 
should you ask for forgiveness, offer that forgiveness and bring you back to a place of righteousness according to the Word of God. All things, the first thing we need to learn from the demoniac is that all things submit to him. All things submit to him. Submit to him. You submit to him is what I'm saying. If this guy with a thousand demons or a legion of demons, there's 2,000 pigs that got destroyed. A legion, according to that time, was up to 6,000 Roman soldiers was called a legion. So there could have been upwards of 6,000 demons manifested in these 2,000 pigs that later destroy themselves in this story. And Jesus commanded them all. You know why? Because Jesus, and it's the second thing that we need to learn, is that Jesus is supreme authority. He has the sovereign authority over everything. Sovereign authority. What does that mean exactly? That means he's the master and has the ability to require and the expectation to require obedience. To say that he is the sovereign king, the sovereign ruler, the sovereign authority is to say that he is master over all things and has the right to expect obedience of us. The verses that I'm referencing are 8 through 13. Let me read this story. It says, For he had been saying unto him, saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. Like I said, Legion was up to 6,000 people. We know there were at least 2,000 because 2,000 got entered these pigs we're about to talk about. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountains. The demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that we might enter them. Jesus gave them permission and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea about about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Now, there's a whole other sermon in the 2,000 and all that stuff and the drowning and the destruction, and I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to tell you this. They began to implore him earnestly to not send them out of the country. Why? Because he has masterful authority that requires obedience and they knew it that is all powerful all knowing in all places he could command them to do whatever he wanted them to do they implored him because it's the only option they had was to beg mercy of him that is the only option we have is to beg mercy of him is to say, what do you do with me? Please don't destroy me. And Jesus calls us out of our mess to save us because he can, because he has supreme authority to enforce obedience over us. He has the absolute right to do whatever he wants us to do. You know what he wants us to do more than anything in the world? Love him enough to be obedient. I think of all the 
what God could have made us. God could have made us agents with no free will. God could have made us robots that were forced to love him. But who wants to be loved like that? That's not love, that's slavery. That's feigned love at the very most. But God determined to pour his love out on us while we were still sinners so that we would want to be obedient. While Paul says, don't use the mercy, the grace that you've received for the purpose of sin. Let it never be. But do it because you love me. We should want to be obedient because when we know when we are obedient, we fulfill God's ultimate purpose, and that is his will for our life and the life of those people around us. What is God's will for us? God's will is that all men be saved, that all men come to know him. The word of God says this, 1 Timothy 2, through 3, 3 through 4, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God's greatest purpose for us is to come into relationship with him. I, I think, and this is where we have to consider all that God did so that we could be in relationship with him. He wants us to be in relationship. His will is such that he placed his son upon a cross so that you would know the love that he has for you not deserving the love he has for you because what you deserve, what we deserve, what we all deserve isn't love but judgment. We don't just deserve judgment. We deserve wrath according to that judgment. God has the right because he is sovereign authority to punish us, to send us to an eternal damnation. But the word of God tells us that he loved us enough while we were still sinners. He sent his son, Jesus, to us to accomplish his greater will. The demoniac understood that God has the, has the right to require obedience of us. Why can't we? This, this being, this entity, this spirit that knew no matter what happened, he was, in, he was going to hell anyway was still obedient to God. Us and our love and the love God showed us, can we not be obedient to his will too? His will is also that everything work to his glory. And I put them in this order on purpose because all people coming to him is for the purpose of his glory. Our salvation ain't about us. Our salvation is about him. It's to show everything how awesome and how magnificent he is. Who, who gets glory for punishing someone that deserves punishment? But if you step back, humble yourself, give mercy to someone that deserves punishment, then your name is remembered. Then you are lifted up. So everything happens according to his will, which is that we shall be saved. 
but also so that he might receive glory. So that ultimately his will be that everything work to our good. I want you to know that God has your good in mind regardless of what's going on in your life. I know some of the people in this room and I ain't telling your business. But I know you need to know that God works everything out for his own glory. And bringing you through the storm in your life will be for his glory and your good. That's what the Bible says in Romans 8, 28. And we know, everybody say no, no. that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. There's nothing absent from all. There's nothing set aside from the word all. It doesn't say most or some. It says all things. And you're all, well, I don't understand how this is going to work out for my good or for God's glory. You don't have to. You're not omnipotent. You're, om you're not omniscient. And you're not all present. But God sees the landscape of eternity. If I die today, and because of my death and what is told of my life, my great-grandchild gets saved, then ultimately my death existed for the greater good because I love him and I'm called according to his purpose. And let me tell you, I'd prefer my great-grandson be in heaven than me be alive right now. It doesn't have to make sense to you. We have to trust that whatever it is, God is working it out for our good. Why? Because as demonstrated by this demoniac, we recognize and acknowledge that God has sovereign authority over all things. Just trust that authority. He has the ability to work out his will in your life. And will do it. Might as well go along with it. Amen. Because <laughs> there have been times I've been rebellious to God's will. But you know what happened? His will went forward anyway. It just hurt me more. But not because God wanted to hurt me, but because he's going to accomplish his will and I place myself out from under the hand of his blessing in my lack of obedience. That's a tough word, man, but it should be a comforting word too. So we learn. What, what have we learned so far? That everything submits to him. Everything has to acknowledge his sovereign authority, including us. And third, the world hates a sound mind. This is my, I'm not going to say my favorite part of this teaching, but it, it's so true. It's, it's palpable to me. 14 through 17, Jesus did this incredible work. This man who had at least 2,000 demons in him is no longer possessed. And this is what happened. The herdsmen ran away. All the men that were tending to these swine ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Let's contrast these two things. 
first he was a man in shackles that had been bound in chains, chains that had been broken, no one strong enough to subdue him. Dwelling was amongst the tombs because nobody wanted to be around him. His life was absolutely horrible. He was insane until the sovereign authority of God went to work in his life. And the people didn't celebrate. Instead, they, rep- they responded inappropriately. They didn't celebrate Jesus. They asked Jesus to go away. In this verse, it says, Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to implore him, capital H, that's Jesus, to leave their region. Instead of celebrating the sovereign God that just proved who he is by subduing the one that no one else could subdue, no number of people could subdue, they decided that the best reproach was to drive Jesus out of the way because they were more scared of this man with a sound mind than they were of the man with the traumatized, demonically possessed mind. Why do I tell you that? What lesson is that in there for us? One, we need to respond right and appropriately to the miracles of God and give him the glory he deserves. But secondly, they're not going to be cool with you either. There are people right now that I don't talk to that I used to talk to because they they appreciated me more when I was half crazy than they do now that I'm not crazy. And that's okay. They're scared of us. Jesus said, they, they hate me, they're going to hate you. You need to understand that because of your sound mind, those with an unsound mind may ask you to leave the region because they're not okay with you. That doesn't matter. That's not your problem. Your job is to do what God has called you to do, to accomplish his will and his purpose, which is to glorify him and to make sure that you communicate the message of the gospel in a way that all men come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Because only through Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will they ever be unbound from that which binds them. Amen? Don't be scared of a sane mind. People are scared of a sane mind because they're more worried about what Jesus will take from them than they are excited about what God's willing to give them. He took from him demons and gave him his life back. He took from you your sin and gave you your life back. Some people that you hang out with aren't going to like that. But that's okay. You have to tell them the truth anyway, which is the last and final thing I'll tell you we learned from this demoniac. And that is that Jesus gave us all a ministry. 18 through 20. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. I imagine so. Could you imagine your life being as horrible and upside down as his, this guy's was, and Jesus came, showed up, cleaned him up, gave him back a sound mind, and he wants to go with Jesus. But Jesus said no. And he did not let him. But he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. 
And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis, that is an area of ten cities, that's what that means, so a region, what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. I want you to grab a hold of this. Jim Cubic used to be all the horrible things Jim Cubic used to be. God came and gave me back a sane mind. And instead of taking me home, he said, I want you to stay here and I want you to tell people about the goodness and the mercy that you received. Now get out of my boat. Jesus didn't put put you in a boat to take you home. He left you in your circles of influence to bring him to your home. This amazes me. The totally unqualified, being qualified for no other reason than Jesus decided to to love me. My challenge to you is to accept all of these things, to accept that it's our responsibility to submit. It's our responsibility to acknowledge and sit under the sovereign authority of God. It's our job to walk in a sane mind and do what we can to show other people what a sane mind in Christ Jesus looks like and to walk out that ministry regardless of who you think you used to be. Nobody indicts you after Jesus except for you and the people that are too ignorant to see the Jesus in you. But they're just ignorant. They're dead in their sins and their trespasses according to the word of God. So walk into your Decapolis. Get out of the boat and tell people about Jesus. Amen.